Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the lore and story for the L5R RPG. I'm Korva. And I'm Kikita Kaori. And we have a special guest today. Hi, I'm Marie Brennan. Marie is the author of many of our fictions, and she has recently come out with The Eternal Plot. Thank you so much for joining us today. Did you just call The Eternal Plot? Eternal Plot? <laughs> eternal Not? <laughs> I, I, I think that's sort of appropriate, actually. <laughs> yeah, The Eternal oh Plot. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Eternal Not, which I must get my hands on because it's, it's all things Tagashi, which is what I'm, I'm fascinated by, so... <laughs> Oh, that's why I wanted to write it, pretty much. So, could you tell us about uh, who you are and your background and what led you to writing for Legend of the Five Rings? Uh, So, I am a full-time fantasy novelist and short story writer. Um, I've been writing professionally. uh, I guess I sold my first novel about... um, Wow, we're actually coming up on... It was 15 years ago. (laughs) Wow. Um, And uh, so, yeah, I've been writing for quite some time. And I got into writing for L5R, uh, well, first I was a player, um, as, you know, is the case for many of us. Uh, <laughs> I was in a game and a friend of ours asked if I'd ever played L5R because he was thinking of starting up a campaign. And I said, oh, I've only kind of vaguely heard about it. I don't know a lot. But he pitched it to me as, oh, well, it's based on Japan pretty heavily. And he knew that was an interest of mine. Um uh, So I went and, you know, looked at the books and got started playing in the game and, uh, got connected with working for L5R through Imperial Histories, uh, the fourth edition source book, oh. had a sidebar where it said, the chapter on the dawn of the Empire, it discussed what might the Empire have looked like if different kami had ended up as the first emperor. Uh-huh. And I looked at the one for Togashi, uh, and it said that it would probably be a more like mystical wuxia kind of empire, and I thought, that sounds fun. <laughs> um, oh, so yeah. I started just sort of imagining for my own purposes what that might look like and then they did um i think they like referred to it as a contest but really it was an open submissions call where they said basically you can send in proposals for chapters for imperial histories too and so i sent in two proposals uh one of which was not very well thought out it was sort of my attempt to do like a magical industrial revolution but i never got the the metaphysics of it working quite like i wanted to mm-hmm. um and the other one was for a togashi dynasty AU, and that's the one that they picked up. So I wrote that for Imperial Histories 2, mm-hmm. and that led to me writing for the RPG books for the rest of 4th edition. Um, and that was all RPG stuff. I wasn't writing fiction for AEG. Mm-hmm. But then when Fantasy Flight bought it out, uh, I... I, I was really persistent about this. Um, <laughs> I, because <laughs> I didn't really know anybody at Fantasy Flight, and I wasn't even sure who to talk to. But I sort of kept like beating my head against any wall I could find until I finally managed to talk to somebody. who was like, "Yeah, sure, uh, you know, you can write fiction." Uh, and <laughs> was, so... it, was it? Oh, we'd love to have you on board, or was it? Uh, yes, fine, just go on. <laughs> <laughs> I think what, once I once I found the right people to talk to, and I think a chunk of it probably was when I first started asking Fantasy Flight wasn't even really lining that stuff up yet. I think I I sort of uh, jumped the gun a bit. But yes, once I finally was talking to the right people, it sounded like they were enthusiastic at the thought (laughs) as opposed to, fine, if it will shut you up. (laughs) (laughs) At least I hope so. (laughs) Well, it seems to have worked out. So, okay, I think 
It seems to have worked out all right. Uh, so what were your own first impressions of Rock Again and Legend of the Five Rings right back when you started? So, like I said, I, I picked up the fourth edition books, which, for starters, they were really pretty. Like... <laughs> You know, this was a very professional-looking product. It had actual good artwork as opposed to, you know, there are some gaming books. You pick them up and you're like, oh, oh, honey. <laughs> um, there, like they, they, and they may be perfectly good games. <laughs> yeah, they may be perfectly good games, but the visual impression sometimes is not that great. Yeah. Um, and that's certainly true of older L5R books. Like, I, I look at some of the early edition stuff and I just kind of cringe a little. <laughs> um, the, the 90s were a bad time for us all. Yeah, yeah, they were. Um, so they, they looked very nice. And, you know, like I said, the reason my friend invited me into this game was because he knew that I was interested in Japan. Um, like, I didn't major in it or anything. Uh, but I was, like, I've studied the Japanese language. I've been to Japan several times. I've read a bunch, like, taken some history courses, read a bunch of things for research for other things that I've written. Uh, so this was something I was already fairly steeped in. And I was really impressed with how well the books did in, like, dealing with that, just sort of as my first impression of it. <laughs> Later on, I'll admit, as I, I got further into the weeds of it, there were things that really made me cringe. Right. Um, like, I... I am really glad. One of the things that made me happiest when I did get involved writing the fictions for Fantasy Flight is they sent out a style guide that included, okay, we're actually going to use the Japanese language correctly. <gasps> and that made me so happy. What? Because, yeah, I mean, literally, when I was looking at the, the fourth edition stuff, and I hit uh, Shirosano Kenhayai, mm. and like that translates to I have a Japanese dictionary and no idea how to use it. I, I, um, I, yeah, I've, I, I've, I've often characterized an awful lot of. I mean, I, I, it was harder to do the research back then, is what I'm true. saying. I, I will grant but that. There but there is a certain <laughs> amount of Google, well, pre Google Translate and Kana Scrabble. Where clearly there's sort of they they there are times I think they issued each writer with a bag of syllables and just <laughs> well and I mean I don't mind it for the made up words like people's made up names and such like that actually doesn't bother me it's ignoring the Sano bit which I don't know what they were even doing there Shiro does mean castle Ken does mean sword and Hayai does mean swift but when you put those words together I think I worked out at one point it should be like Hayatojo. That's actually how you combine those words, because they change when you put them into a compound. Um, and so, like, that just made me cringe, because it is so disrespectful to be using real words, but using them wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it made me really glad when Fantasy Flight, you know, was doing better with that. But, I mean, even apart from that, it's clear that especially as you got further through the editions of L5R, um, you had people involved who were giant nerds for the history and the culture and would do things like write entire sections on, here's how sake brewing works. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. I love that stuff. Yeah, and because my academic background is in anthropology and folklore, I, I went to graduate school in those fields. Mm -hmm. Um and so the richness of the setting is what impressed me about Rokugan and really drew me into it. Um, even though obviously it's doing things where, like, it's based on Japan, it's based on many periods of Japan mashed together. Like, you yeah. have the courtliness of the Heian period and the armies of the Sengoku period and the bureaucracy of the Tokugawa period all at once. But yeah. I'm fine with that plus, because plus, it. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. 
Plus a healthy well, dose a, of just made-up nonsense, but yeah. Well, yeah. well, it's got a little China in there, too, a little Mongolia, a little Korea, you know, a little Philippines. Yeah, I, I like the, the Mongolian bit coming in through the unicorn, because I think that fits them. I'll admit that, like, if left to my own adv- devices, I probably wouldn't have the Chinese and Korean elements so much, because it feels like... If it had been from the start that each of the clans was a different part of Asia, yes. then that would feel coherent to me. Yes. But because the dominant thing is very clearly Japan, yes. I tend to run with it being mostly Japan and not yeah. having those other bits. I, I, I feel I've I've found my people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think I mean, I've said before that there's there's problems with putting Korean clothes on someone who is a samurai who follows Bushido. Right, because you run into a lot of historical tensions I, there. I, and, and, and I would love it if they wanted to say, let's make it more Pan-Asian. Let's have a Korea. Let's have yeah. a China. Yeah, if you just straight up went and like made the Phoenix Korea or something, mm-hmm. and you made somebody else was Vietnam, and you know they just did it that way, that would be – but that wouldn't be the, the Rokugan that people – That's true. Or if, or if there's a Korea out there, because they, they've, right. they've pretty much everything to the West – of Rogan has to be remade anyway. Why right. not do that? But yes, yeah. I I I, I like your opinions. So I'd like to subscribe to your newsletter. <laughs> I do actually have a newsletter. <laughs> now you say all that, but then again, you end up being the uh, predominant writer for the Dragon, which are mm. very um, Chinese. <laughs> yeah, there is. I mean, clearly the the kind of wuxia feeling. Yeah, a lot of that is is coming yeah. from um, you know Chinese media, Chinese culture. Um, I mean, specifically so the Tagashi, Yeah. So yes, I, I'll, I'll admit I'm not perfectly consistent either. <laughs> no, but what makes the dragons so cool? You you seem to uh, really enjoy them. Starting off with the Takashi Empire. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like the mysticism, right? You know, I I like supernatural things. Um, I I know that. Uh, some people have responded to the the Togashi dynasty kind of saying that they prefer the supernatural to be more sort of on the edges of stuff. And I'm like, no, nah, man, dive right in. <laughs> like, um, I, I would probably, um, you know, I'm very much associated with writing the dragon because Fantasy Flight does to a fairly large, though not strict extent, um, you know, have a certain bit of certain writers have kind of colonized particular corners of the story. And those are the ones that we handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think Spooky might shiv me if I went after anything Phoenix. <laughs> 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 but I would happily write Phoenix as well because they also have the religion and the mysticism and the magic and all of that stuff mm-hmm. as, as a big part of their shtick. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I like I – mean, you see this in The Eternal Knot. I like doing things with the religious philosophy. I like doing things with yokai and such. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so anything that gives me a chance to do that, I, I tend to dive in on. And plus, you know, I was actually just saying this on the Discord uh, – Americans in particular do have sort of this love for the the individualistic character who kind of goes their own way, and the dragon are built to allow that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want the the non mystical version of that, you go for the mantis, and if you want the mystical version, you go for the dragon. <laughs> oh, even with the Miramoto, they did they don't even have to be that mystical. The Miramoto, uh, right, much right. more the traditional samurai, but they still have that individualistic ideas behind them. Well, and if I remember correctly, their fourth edition school still had lore theology as a school skill. So, like, that's what I yeah. like about the Miramoto is like, yeah, they're Bushid. Like, it's not that they're super mystical in what they do, mm. but they're still like religious scholars who could kind of, you know, kick your butt in a theological debate. <laughs> yes, while while they're currently <laughs> kicking your butt in a sword fight. Exactly. Yeah, they're they're going to you know explain to you that like pain is an illusion or something while they're cutting you up. I don't know. Yes, <laughs> pretty much. If you just release the desire for not being in pain. <laughs> uh, 
so so you like the dragon dragon's really cool do you find a clan that's hardest to write is there is there a least favorite which those might be two separate questions now I think about it. Yeah, yeah. They, I think hardest to write and least favorite are separate questions. Hardest to write, I have two answers for that, and one of them is the dragon. <laughs> 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 because um, you know, number one, they are a clan that's carrying a lot of baggage from the old edition in terms of they were originally set up as the like, you know, mysterious, nobody knows why they're doing what they're doing, but they're right. Um which I can see how that's obnoxious, right, for an ongoing story. The idea that they basically did nothing until they came down out of the mountains and did exactly what needed to be done, that's not all that narratively interesting when you're thinking about them as protagonists as opposed to plot devices. Um, and so I was actually really glad when the uh, stuff started getting rolling and Fantasy Flight was like, okay, we're doing two things with the dragon where one, they have this problem with their birth rate is declining. And also there's this sect in their lands that like they're tolerating, but it might be a problem in these various ways. Um, so both of those I really liked because that was, hey, look, there is plot that is specifically problems for the dragon to deal with, you know, as opposed to them being a plot device for everybody else's stuff. Um, but Anything that involves prophecy and foresight is kind of automatically really difficult to handle well. Um, you know, one of the stereotypical ways of doing it is just make it so vague that it could mean anything until after the fact you say it meant this thing over here. Uh, and, you know, there are some ways in which I think we do still have to do that a little bit just because the fact that the story is also player influenced means that there are some points on which we've got to leave things flexible. Because if it's like, oh, players decided B instead of A, then the plot needs to be able to accommodate that, right? But as a more pervasive thing, it's like, how do you have characters protag if they're also being given these sort of, like, you know, mystically insightful instructions? Uh, and so I specifically tried to address that a bit with, um, there's a line in Two Swords Fall from Heaven where Mitsu thinks about how the whole, like, aid the prince, well, which prince. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that, actually. Yeah, well, so specifically, uh, there's the line in there that I put in exactly to address the feeling left over from the old version of, you know, oh, it's cryptic because Yokuni is a dick. Uh, <laughs> instead, it's – he specifically thinks that Yokuni told them everything he could because those visions are hard, that it's not easy for them to uh, – you know, to like channel this kind of vision and so on. And so what I'm trying to do is set up a situation where the dragon do have information that other people don't have, but it is incomplete and imperfect, and they still have to try and like figure out what to do with it. <laughs> you do get these you're getting these two factions who are both in the dragon who are both right. aiding the prince. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so you know, I, I I don't think Fantasy Flight, I don't know. I don't think they're planning on doing something where, like, the Empire splits and both Sotori and Dai, Daisetsu wind up as Emperor. I don't think they're planning that. So They, they could do. I, 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 I think, yeah. yeah. That, that would be interesting, uh, but I, I don't think that's what they're planning. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, but it, it means that odds are either Hitomi or Mitsu is going to turn out to be wrong. I genuinely do not know which one. <laughs> or, or possibly, because they didn't say aid the Emperor, it says aid the Prince. Maybe they should. Aid each prince. <laughs> Who knows? Exactly. Um, but, you know, regardless of what the actual answer is, the characters are not, like, marching in lockstep with, we've been told to do X, we do X. It's the, uh, I don't know, what do I do? And so they have to try and use their <laughs> judgment. And that's where I find 
it is both challenging and fun to play with prophecy of if you have this information, but like you're still a fallible human. And, you know, we may do plots where somebody gets given instructions and they fail to carry them out. So what happens then? Um, we may get things where it's like, okay, they were given instructions and that is a way to accomplish this thing, but maybe there was a better way. And, you know, maybe it could have been done with like less damage. Who knows? These are all the kinds of things I would like to explore in the story yeah. if we get a chance. Um, the other one that I think uh, is difficult to write is actually the Lion Clan, um, I, for two reasons. One, that I, I they're they're kind of the Boy Scouts of the setting when they're done right, and there's a tendency, like in real life, people who are actually like honest and upstanding and reliable and so forth, they are great. They are the people you want as friends. In a story, they can be kind of boring. Right. Um, you know, they're going to be less flashy than the bad boys and the rebels. And, you know, you, you always see this with like the badly written love triangles, right? Where there's the one person that you would actually want to have as the boyfriend. And then there's the one who's <laughs> the walking train wreck. And the walking train wreck's more interesting. <laughs> um, so I think the lion can fall into that trap of being sort of bland. I would offer up the counterexample of Captain America in the Marvel movies. They've done an excellent yes. job with him. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, that's hard to do, must be said. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would say that is partly down to the charisma of the performance. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, there are ways that fiction can do things like that, but it's not going to have the actual pretty man on the screen in front of you where you're like, yes, just keep talking. And could you flex while you're doing that? <laughs> yeah. Like, they've got the one shot in, um, I think it's Winter Soldier, where, or maybe it's Civil War, where they're like, the helicopter's taking off. Yes. And he's trying to hold it down. And he literally flips his grip so that we get like both forms of flexing. And I'm like, oh, thank you for the fan service. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you can't put the entire Lion Clan into a skin tight, skin tight outfit. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think we could have a bit more fan service, maybe. But uh, yeah. So you can't do that kind of thing quite in the stories. Yeah. Um, and the other problem with the Lion is and this is something that I. I've talked about on the, the forums and Discord, so people may have seen me say this, but I think the setting has actually painted them into a bit of a corner, because their shtick is war, mm. but Rokugan is isolationist, which means that, except when you get, and AEG did this a lot, you know, these giant threats come in that try to curb stomp the entire empire, and then all the clans have to band together to fight mm -hmm. back. Yes. They're never... Yeah, they're never fighting some external threats, so they're only fighting their fellow Rokugani, which makes them look like bullies. I think they were. If I remember right, from some of the material, some of the you know when you the fifth fifth ed, it sort of this is what you know. I think before the mm -hmm. unicorn turned up, the lion were in fact fighting off uh, external threats. But right. now the unicorn has come in, and they're the ones who sit on that pathway that the right the, the line are sitting in the middle of the empire they don't have external borders <laughs> and i think uh, it's like it's a real problem like every so often someone should say oh it's an external thing let the lion go fight it but instead it ends up everyone fights it and so why do we have a lion clan yeah like what i did in the campaign that i ran which was togashi dynasty au and so it was kind of a, a different scenario anyway but um when there was a thing that uh, they had to fight, I, I basically sort of repurposed the Dark Naga plotline um, and kind of crossed it also with like Oblivion's Gate. Um, and what happened was, okay, the, the Empire sort of agreed, like, yes, we need to go fight this threat. And because the PCs were by that point ridiculously influential and so on, they had a lot of uh, leeway in um, 
influencing who was going to be in charge of that. And they appointed a lion as shogun to command the armies of Rokugan to go deal with this thing because the lion were the best generals and such. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the other thing that I... I would like to see more of in the setting because I tend to do a version of Rokugan that's kind of more fragmented. Like I have a lot of minor clans. I have a lot of vassal families. Yes. And if there's more infighting within the clans, if stuff like what's going on right now with Tsuko, instead of being a holy crap, we can't believe this is happening. It's so unheard of. If that was more common, then you could have a situation where the lion are frequently at war with the lion. And that's why they're so good at war, is because they're always fighting themselves. And when they could actually all pull together in sync and go somewhere else, then they're freaking terrifying. That's kind of what I thought that they've done anyway. You know, I've always done it that way. It's almost like summer is war season for the lion and, you know, somebody needs to be uh, put down among the uh, various capitals. Of the lion, um, I've actually had thoughts along the same way. Making the making things a little less centralized, um, making things a bit more like the samurai drama way clans are set up, because that gives you more opportunity for infighting and succession and dramas and and stuff like that, which I think can give you that conflict. Yeah, and having not just infighting at the clan level, but like family versus family within a clan, and not just for the lion. To be clear, I think that there should be right. a lot of power struggles in all the clans, just not necessarily in the same form. Like who's going to be in charge of this province, and that can give exactly. you a whole campaign worth of. Yeah, because we get things like you know the Atlas of Rokugan went through province by province, and it was identifying things as like you know this is a Doji province, this is a Kikita province, and you know it's like well, what if those changed hands sometimes, or if there was more fighting among the Doji for which Doji is in charge of that? Uh, I I like running it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, as for least favorite, uh, I'm going to apologize to all the people I'm about to outrage. Um, <laughs> actually, the crab. I'm not that interested in the crab. I'm officially mm-hmm. outraged. Uh, yeah, and basically what it is is that though I some of the things that I've written have been published as horror for the most part I am not a horror writer mm-hmm. and so the whole like you know horrible monstrosities that we have to fight off uh, and I, I like writing fight scenes like I've actually written a book called writing fight scenes uh, <laughs> but I like it on the level of individual fights mm. when you get to armies eh, I don't yeah. I don't really care that much about armies and so a lot of the stuff that is kind of crab genre fundamentally isn't my kind of thing. Mm. Uh, uh-huh. So it you know. they're they're pretty overwhelming and hard cuz it's one story. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and the good news is, like, I, I mentioned that Fantasy Flight does sort of, to some extent, have us sorted out now into our various corners. Like, yeah. there are people who love writing crab stories, <laughs> and they can go write the crab stories, and they will do a better job than I probably would, because they <laughs> love that thing and will yeah. dive in. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, when you're talking about all these stories, what about individual characters? What's your favorite and least favorite character? I'm not sure exactly that I have favorites in that regard. Um, <clears throat> I I will say that it was a little bit intimidating. Um, I'm sort of glad that in writing The Dragon, a lot of what I have been dealing with is stuff that just didn't exist or didn't happen in previous canon, so that I'm not carrying the baggage of how it played out before. Um, like, I think if I'd been in charge of writing, like, Shoju, Kachiko, all the <laughs> yeah. stuff sort of in the center of the Imperial Palace, I would have been really intimidated, because I honestly never read most of the fiction from the old version of the game. Uh-huh. Uh, so those characters who are really iconic and well-known and did all these things, I don't know them that well <laughs> in that regard. I know the summaries of what they did from the RPG books, but yeah. I don't know their characterization in the actual stories. Uh, so even, like, Mitsu and Hitomi... 
it was really intimidating when I got started with them that I'm sitting there thinking, oh, crap, like, what if I write them wrong? And people are saying, <laughs> oh, my God, you don't understand this at all. And I, I actually, in a way, I feel like I have written Hitomi wrong, and everybody's very glad of it. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's not angry enough. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, that's the thing that people are. There was one person, I, I think, when the Rising Wave who came out who said something like, Oh, I missed, you know, Hitomi the Constant Rage Monster. But mostly, <laughs> the response I've yeah. seen is, Wow, I don't hate her this time. And I, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> what's, gone, what's gone wrong? I don't hate her. <laughs> yeah, so um, both of those did did worry me a bit in writing them because they were iconic, well-known characters, and I'm much more comfortable writing people who have been made up for this version of canon. So, right. you know, I'm I'm the only one who's established what they're like, or maybe it's somebody who, they're new to canon, somebody else wrote a story about them before. Um, I'm forgetting now who it is that maintains the imperial census on the, the forum, but um, thank you to whoever that is, because, like, I needed to write Sumiko into Two Swords Fall from Heaven, and I could go to that and say, what stories has Sumiko appeared in so far? <laughs> go and refresh my memory. Yeah, and, and to know where to look. So I, I could go and say, all right, let's look at Sumiko's appearances so far. All right, I've got that in my head. Let's go. That's super helpful. <laughs> How much research do you tend to do when you write stories for L5R? Do you, and is it into real life, real life Japan and Asia, or into the AEG version, that kind of thing? I don't do a huge amount of research into the AEG version, which partly is because I know 4th edition inside and out, and those books were pretty comprehensive about covering the history, the culture, etc. So a lot of that stuff I've just internalized enough that I don't have to look it up. Um, I do do a fair bit and have done a fair bit in the past of research into um, real-life Japan in particular, because uh, I've written some other things that are set in Japan, um, and like I, I said, that's just been an interest of mine for a very long time. So the research has been all over the board. <laughs> I, I have on the AEG end of things, like there was uh, something I was working on where I needed to decide, was I going to use a real setting from canon or was I going to like make up a town or a village? And so like mm. I went through the Atlas of Rokugan and I was looking at different places going, do I want to set it here? Do I want to set it there? <laughs> In the Garden of Lies, the one where Yogo Hirue is talking to Kitsuki Shomon, um, that one, Katrina actually sent me a scan of the original canon stuff about Shomon and like her dojo and so forth so that I would kind of have the background there. Uh-huh. Oh, and I, actually, looping back briefly, I think I would say uh, Hiroe was one of the more fun characters for me to write because <laughs> I actually like writing Scorpion when they're not totally being backstabbing. Uh, <laughs> like, I play writing him playing Shomon was a lot of fun, um, <laughs> in particular because Fantasy Flight was totally on board with me being like, yeah, so, you know, he's bisexual and seductive and all those things, and then looks at Shomon and says, that's not going to work, and has to do something else. Because <laughs> you usually see, like, female characters get depicted as seducers um, and using that to manipulate people, but you, you don't see it as often with male characters. Right. But yeah, so for that one, there was AEG canon research. Um, you know, with The Eternal Knot, um, there's a yokai called a Kobukaiba who plays a, a role in the story there. And mm-hmm. that's one I made up because I read up on, actually, I think it was both like things that had been established as existing creatures in mm. previous L5R, but, you know, most of them were tainted, which was annoying. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm really glad that we have more supernatural, non tainted things in this version mm-hmm. of canon. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I ended up making up the Kobokaiba, modeling it on similar kinds of yokai that do exist, but I, I hit a point where I thought, you know, I want something that's sort of tailor made for the purposes of the story here. Mm-hmm. 
like, weirdly, one of the things that I have to research in, like, every other thing I write, whether it's L5R related or not, um, I'm really terrible at nature. <laughs> like, I grew up in suburban <laughs> Dallas. What even is nature? <laughs> so, so, I, 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 and so he went outside and looked at me, flip, 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 trees. Yeah, it, it's basically <laughs> if I don't watch what I'm doing, then people will be surrounded by generic trees and flowers and such. And there's a bird. <laughs> uh, like, what kind? And so especially with the eternal nod, like, Kazue likes being out in nature. That's a yeah. thing that she feels drawn to. And so there's a bit where she and Mitsu are heading to Fuchimura, and I've got, like, a, a paragraph or so of description of the mountains in there. And I probably spent longer researching that one paragraph of, like, I don't know what kinds of trees would grow there. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah there's there's certain things that I am perennially weak on and always have to kind of step back, which is sort of funny because like the series that I was writing recently, not L5R, the memoirs of Lady Trent, the main character is a natural historian, meaning like kind of a field biologist. And so, yeah, I had to do a lot of, okay, let's learning about the natures. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to write a character who knows stuff that I know nothing about. Yeah, <laughs> but... Uh, no, I, I'm I'm working on something where um, I've got some books on like traditional Japanese architecture. And mm. years ago, the first time I went to Japan, I went to um, the Hida Mountain Village near Takayama, where they've got like these old farmhouses that have been disassembled and moved over there and rebuilt. And so it's like, yeah, now I will be researching traditional Japanese farmhouse architecture because yep. like they've got these really like sloped roofs because they need to be able to shed snow what the heck is on the second floor of those buildings like <laughs> do they do they sleep up there like what you know how do they use the space um turns out they they used it for um curing meat a lot of the time because the smoke rising up from below would just naturally smoke the meat up there um, <laughs> like, you know these are the things i learned yeah, stuff uh, uh, if you were doing silk production, they could end up Yes, in the loft yeah, they used well. it for silk production in areas where they could do that. Um, yeah. And then, you know, uh, meat curing if you didn't really – because this is something where I'm like, hmm, in Dragonlands, is that good for silk production? I'm thinking probably not the best. <laughs> so meat curing it is. Got it. All their, all their mountain tuna. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> I, I loved looking up uh, the, the, the Yamajiro, the, the types of castles they had in mountains mm. – which is just yeah. fascinating. The way they made them is so completely different. Yeah. Also, great yeah. fun. So, yes, basically, there there is no topic too obscure for me to wind up researching it because I need it for a story. <laughs> well, you were in a, a rather advantageous position because there was so little about the culture within the Tagashi itself yeah. in old 5R. So you didn't have much to compete with. You kind of managed to make that, it sounded like, for reading it, whole cloth when you were coming up with the Eternal Knot. So what were your thoughts and inspirations when you developed that culture? Yeah, so a lot of it was, yeah, there wasn't much said about their training or about their genpuku other than it involves getting a tattoo. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I did get to make that stuff up. And um, props to Katrina Ostrander because there was a point when I was working on developing the novella, um, and I, th I think if you look at the timeline of the uh, the fictions, you can probably see also what fictions I was writing at the time we had this conversation. Because I said, okay, we've got the Togashi, they're monks, but like, what does that even mean? Because basically <laughs> their order had been defined as they act weird and have magic tattoos. I'm like, but what's going on theologically, right? <laughs> you know, if they're oh, yeah. monks... And, and if you think about it, they were they they started out right after Shinsei. 
Shinsei turns up, mm-hmm. has a conversation. Yeah. Takashi goes, that's really weird. And next thing you know, he's up a mountain with, with monks. Yeah. Um, so what I, I think this was actually Katrina's suggestion, and, and you can see that we're um, running with it, because it's sort of been mentioned in oblique ways in some of the published fictions, and it's much more explicit in the novella. So I, I don't feel like I'm giving a spoiler here to say this. It's literally like the first thing that happens in the novella. <laughs> Part of what is going on with the Togashi Order is they do remember their previous lives. They don't Ooh. remember every single one in full detail, but they have a lot of access to those memories. Uh, and so we talked about like that being part of what's going on with them and the idea that, yeah, they do return to the order in every lifetime. Um, and kind of along with that, the concept which – like. There's probably going to be a point at which this falls down and we'll just be like, yeah, ignore that thing over there. But <laughs> um, the, the idea that controlling the tattoos and learning to actually fully use their power takes multiple lifetimes of training. Mm-hmm. That this oh. is not something that you learn to do entirely in a single lifetime. And the reason I said we'll, we'll probably break that at some point is I know in old canon there were random characters who weren't Togashi monks who got given tattoos. Uh, so, yeah. you know, when those special snowflakes happen, we're just going to be like, they're special snowflakes, ignore that. Normally you <laughs> cannot master it in a single lifetime. <laughs> well, I mean, the obvious one is, okay, you were in a life, you were in a previous lifetime, you were a Togashi. You're not this time. For That's some confusing. reason, because you're supposed to go back to the order in every lifetime, basically. Yeah, so we're just going to tattoo uh, you now. Just, okay, make notes <laughs> for your next uh, life. Well, at some point, uh, the Tagashi had to have new people in the order, or otherwise there'd only be like five Tagashi. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there there are ways that like new people join. It's just sort of once an Isaizumi, always an Isaizumi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the idea that they focus specifically on learning to recognize the right moment to act. And so you will sit there and you will be passive for long periods of time because you are watching and you are waiting for that instinct that says now. So in in some ways, it's like their order is based on the same underlying principle as Iaijutsu. Mm-hmm. That it, it's that the perfect moment. Mm-hmm. And when that moment comes, you strike. So those were some of the things that we worked out for them because, yeah, there, there needed to be more there than just, we're weird and have magic tattoos. Right, right. <laughs> you know, as fun as that is, we kept that. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, so the, the dragon, it, it's been fun to kind of flesh out some things about how they work uh, because, yeah, it was sort of underdefined in a lot of things in early, you know, old canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you find that there are themes that you like to touch on for your stories? Is, is there a specific sort of story that particularly touches your heart um yeah probably but other people might have to tell me what those are (laughs) it is actually really difficult to look at my own fiction from the outside like that um Mm. sometimes writers will get asked you know like uh, you know who do you write like like i have no idea (laughs) you tell me (laughs) um i mean there are certain tropes that i know that i will come back to I, i think i it's easier for me to see the tropes than the themes um like i it hasn't really come up in any of the L5R stuff, but um, I really do like um, people who are either siblings or they might as well be siblings. Like, that's a thing I come back to a lot. Um, I, I really like good, strong platonic friendships between men and women because I hate the idea I... that if men and women are friends, then they must eventually become romantically or sexually interested in each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, certain kinds of redemption arc and... Uh, like, I I would write more Scorpion stuff if given the opportunity, because I had a long-running, uh, really, really important Scorpion NPC in the campaign that I ran, who, um, I, 
his life was such a soap opera by the time it was done because he was, uh, in short form, he was a Shosuro actor who was sent to infiltrate the Owl Clan because this was Togashi Dynasty yep. AU, so it was the the Hante Clan, um, and so he actually um, got like they they used creepy creepy magic to basically face sculpt him to look like Ooh. a a Hante kid who was just about to go off for his training. So he gets sent off right after his Genpuku, replaces this Hante kid, goes through Hante Bushi training, uh, you know, goes through a second Genpuku. Eventually betrays the Owl Clan, goes back to the Scorpion, um, becomes a self-loathing alcoholic because he basically he, his mother was a yogo. He betrayed the thing he loved most, mm. um, <laughs> which was the Owl and specifically one of the other PCs that he had fallen in love with. Um, the PCs eventually come to Scorpion lands. He winds up betraying the Scorpion <laughs> in order to work with the PCs. Um, <laughs> And this led to one of my favorite lines I have ever had in a game. Um, after he basically betrayed the Scorpion to to help the PCs, um, he he tried he committed seppuku. <laughs> he tried to commit seppuku. He got as far as cutting himself open, and then they healed him uh, and talked him into working with them instead of you know actually dying. Um, and one of the PCs, as they were like walking off to to leave him some time to think about things, um, she tried to sort of encourage him, saying like you know maybe in the long run they're going to understand that you were doing this for like the greater good, etc. And he said, um, you know, you don't understand my clan. This path ends on a tree. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I, I gave myself chills saying that. Oh. <laughs> and the, he did not end up in the Trader's Grove because they had made friends with an Izumi Transcendent who literally erased his name so the Scorpion would forget he existed, and that was the only way to save his life. <laughs> um, we need so to yeah, put he, that horrible traitor um, on the tree, the horrible traitor. Ah, uh, uh, crap, on. what was his name? <laughs> I, I had it a moment ago. He's really we, horrible. I think oh. we did have a discussion about like, well, because I like did somebody else because it, it says with if somebody's name get a, gets erased, then all of the deeds of that person will sort of yeah. get reassigned to the most likely candidate. So I don't know. Did oh, somebody no. else wind up in the traitor's <laughs> couch? I have to say, it would be it would be so hilarious if there's someone going, "Mwahaha! I have gotten away with my evil treachery. They'll never find out." Then someone says, "Oh, it must have been you who did all this treachery." I didn't do that. I didn't do any of that. I did other. Th- I mean, nothing. I didn't do anything. Yeah, I, that, I, I will accept that as my head canon now because I hate the idea that somebody who wasn't treacherous yeah. actually ended up in the Traitor's Grove. So yes, it, it is officially. I am the GM. Therefore, this is canon. It was somebody who deserved to be in the Traitor's Grove, <laughs> just wouldn't have been caught if it weren't for that. Yes. There you go. If it weren't for those meddling PCs. <laughs> so, if if you can say for your past stories, you talked a little bit about um, what. Uh, input Katrina gave towards the Tagashi, but like how much direction were you given regarding the perfect land sect in particular and other parts of your stories? So the perfect land are an interesting case because um, that was in like in there from the beginning. Fantasy right. Delight had the idea that there's going yeah. to be this religious sect that is, uh, as people have noticed, very clearly based on pure land Buddhism. Um, and that this is going to be an ongoing conflict. And I really like the look of that conflict because it's not giant supernatural threat comes in and mm. we must fight it. Um, it's something that's a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. Um, but because I was there at the start, I was sort of able to get in on the ground floor with that plot. Um, I, I don't think it would be breaking my NDA for me to say that um, I looked at that and I was like, this is great. We need to think through this. Uh, <laughs> I- there's, there's like I, I can see a lot of cliffs that you could fall yeah. off. Well, and and not just cliffs, but there are things about 
the way that Pure Land Buddhism works and the the way that that uh, strand kind of happened was very influenced by the historical context mm. of Japanese Buddhism because, in a, a very brief nutshell, um, early Buddhism in Japan was a religion by elites for elites. Mm-hmm. Like this was not a religion that ministered to the common people the way that Shintoism yeah. is. Oh, it, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, came over with basically came over. Uh, from China with literacy and the, exactly. the plans for the, the for the capital and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, and all all of the kind of courtly stuff that was going on there. And so, like the the Nada schools in particular were super elite. Like you you needed a lot of money in order to like um, you know found the copying of sutras or you know donate your manor to become a monastery. All the, which are things that still went on later. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so it was very much a religion for the the aristocrats and the court and so on, and it was not a religion for the common people, which is not true of Shinseism. Mm-hmm. And also, like in Buddhism, there's more than one Buddha, but in Shinseism, there's just Shinsei, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So there were a bunch of things where I said, like, I think this can totally work, but I want to unpack what are the components of Pure Land Buddhism and which of those work or which of them need to be rethought in order to make perfect land Shinseiism make sense. And so I wrote this giant wall of text (laughs) that I sent to them where I was talking about all this theological stuff. And then proposing, uh, and I can't go into detail on this because it hasn't come out in in stories yet, but proposing sort of a history for how exactly um, the the Perfect Land sect developed and what's going on there. Uh, and I sent that all to them and basically got a response saying, awesome, we'll use this. <laughs> so, nice. Uh, so I will say with regard to that plot line in general, I've had a lot of input on it. Because oh, okay. I did dive in right at the beginning and say, okay, I have a million and one thoughts. Can we use these? Uh now, I did propose some things for where I thought the story could go in the long term. Is that where it's going to go? I don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, in part because the story is in flux, that anything that takes this long, both in terms of time scale and number of installments to tell, you know, plans do not survive contact with the page. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, this is, is that even before you start saying plans don't uh, survive contact with the players? Because there right, could be player right. stuff that. Exactly. I don't know if at some point there will be a player-influenced decision regarding the sect. There might be. Uh, So whether or not the story goes in the directions that I propose, who knows? By the time we get there, I may be sitting there saying, yeah, no, those ideas are wrong and we should not use them. Mm. Uh, But – and then with the uh, individual stories on them, and this is true of stories in in general – I can't remember whether it was me or Dave Lauderud on Discord who sort of used the Iron Chef metaphor for talking about how the the fictions happen. Um, You know, we get given our our basket of ingredients and told, make a story. (laughs) (laughs) And what exactly the shape of the story is is very much up to us as long as it includes those ingredients. And sometimes the basket has a lot of ingredients and sometimes it's got like one thing down at the bottom. Uh, In the Garden of Lies, that one had a fair number of ingredients, as I recall. Like, it was, okay, we want to do a thing that involves Kitsuki Shomon, who's got this dojo, and we want her to have this history with um, the the Ronin, who's involved in the sect, Sato. Um, And I think it may have even specified that, like, you know, Miyako needs to be sent north to investigate the sect at the end of it. Like, there there were several things in there that I definitely had to include. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Like I, I said a moment ago, uh, with how did Hiroe approach this? That was entirely up to me, um, and so I, I had fun, you know, working out his approach. And he's like, "Yep, five minutes in, I knew that seduction was not happening, at least not on any time scale shorter than uh, three years." <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's get into a theological debate and let her kick my butt. Um, <laughs> 
but then something like um I think maybe for like seeds on the wind the the prompt for that may have just been like we want a story about Sato um <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't even remember if it was specified that it needed to be about her involvement with the sect or if it could have been like a story going back further to her leaving Shomon. Um, Sato I, goes I shopping! Yeah, yeah, I, I can't honestly remember how much detail there was there, but I know there wasn't a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of that stuff gets developed in conversation with Fantasy Flight um, and with uh, the people there. So like I talked to Katrina and we ended up deciding um, – the the stuff with Hige Sensei announcing that he's had this vision, like we decided, mm. okay, let let's do this in this story here. Um, <clears throat> so sometimes it's stuff where um, it, it can vary whether it's stuff where we're like, okay, we knew we wanted to do this eventually, so let's do it here, or if it's something where we go, we did not plan for this until about three minutes ago, but it sounds great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that works. Um, yeah, which is good because if it were too rigid, I think I would lose interest. I'm not somebody yeah. who tends to outline that much, and so if I was given, like, okay, here's your paint by numbers, I'd go, meh. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can see that. Uh, so if someone's just picked up The Eternal Knot and read it, and they think, I must read more Mary Brennan, uh, where would they go? Where, where, where would you recommend for their starting point? So... Every time I get asked this question, usually not in the the context of L5R specifically, but like, which of your things should I read? I immediately go, well, it depends on what you're looking for, (laughs) because I am not the kind of author who everything I've written has been the same sort of subgenre of book. I've I've bounced around a little bit. Um, And so I would say... The the thing that I'm most well-known for right now um, that uh, is where a lot of people tend to start is The Memoirs of Lady Trent, the series that I mentioned a little while ago. Uh, the first book of that is A Natural History of Dragons. It's sort of a quasi-Victorian setting, but it's secondary world, and it's literally the memoirs of this woman who's kind of a lady adventurer and dragon naturalist, and she travels around the world to different regions to study dragons and invariably gets into trouble there because she's the main character of a book. Of course. Uh, uh, so those have done really well because, number one, I had gorgeous covers for them. Seriously, you people should go look at the covers. They're amazing. Todd Lockwood is fantastic. <laughs> uh, and uh, um, I had a lot of fun with the voice in those because they're written as memoirs. So she's this kind of like, you know, crotchety old lady who's hit the point of nobody can tell me what to say and do anymore because I'm old and famous. <laughs> <laughs> but she's talking about the dumb things that she did when she was younger. So you also get the youthful stupidity mixed in there. Right. Um, and there's a standalone sequel to that series uh, called Turning Darkness into Light, which it's got spoilers for the series inevitably because it takes place afterward, but it is written to be something that you can read on its own if you're not worried about spoiling stuff from the memoirs. And I will recommend that one to anybody who specifically likes the kind of theological end of stuff that I do because there's a lot of religious stuff mixed into that one. It's not Buddhism related uh, or Shinto or anything like that, but it's got the religious contemplation happening in there. Um, I also have a series called The Onyx Court. Uh, the first book of that is Midnight Never Come. Those are historical fantasies uh, set in London at different points during its history. So that first book is Elizabethan, and then there's one book per century up to the Victorian period. Okay. Uh, so if you want the, like, I dove headfirst into my historical research and have tried to bring all of that sort of texture and flavor into the, the story, you know, that's the place to go for that one. And then I've, I've got various other series, like the, the Doppelganger books are more sort of straight-up adventure fantasy, and then I've got an urban fantasy series that starts with Lies and Prophecy, but those are getting further away, I think, from uh, things even p- 
peripherally related to what I do for all five hour. <laughs> that works. Well, is there anything uh, that we haven't uh, we haven't talked about that uh, you want to share with us about uh, what you're doing now or what's coming up for you in the future? Uh, yes, actually, um, occurs to me there there was something that I sort of forgot to mention in the where should people start because you can't actually start there yet. Um, <laughs> but I. Uh, um, my friend Alice Helms and I collaborated on a book recently that's going to be coming out under the joint pen name of M.A. Carrick. Uh, the series is called Rook and Rose, and the first book is going to be titled The Mask of Mirrors. It's not out yet. Uh, we're not sure yet what the publication date is going to be, but this is secondary world epic fantasy and like you, you sort of periodically hit things in your career where you feel like, okay, I've leveled up, and I think this is a I've leveled up kind of book because <laughs> Alyssa and I were really prodding each other to like do more, dig deeper, like bring in more complexity and more texture and so on. And there's also a certain aspect of we met through both of us studying anthropology and folklore, and so I only semi-jokingly say the subtitle for this trilogy is When Anthropologists Attack. Um, <laughs> The you know I, I said at the beginning that the the richness and and coherence of the world for L five R was part of what drew me in like that exists in spades in this series along with intrigue and capers and noble politics and street gangs and interesting magic systems that overlap in weird ways and Alyssa's <laughs> really good at writing foul language for a twelve year old and just <laughs> like we've got all the things. We've got clothing porn, you you name it, we've got it in there. Um that's something that's going to be coming out in the next, I don't know, year to year and a half. I'm not sure when exactly it'll be out. So obviously yeah, there, yep. there's some time to wait on that. But when you see M.A. Carrick, that is also Marie Brennan and Alyssa Helms. All right. That sounds great. Well, I had one more question for you. Uh, okay. Did you have anything else, Kovar, before I ask it? No, I want to hear, the, I want to hear this one. All right. <laughs> so I've read through The Eternal Knot, and I got to the end of it, and I read all about Kensho and all read about Sensei, and I'm not giving any way spoilers away to say, say those names, I don't think. And I have a question for you. And that question okay. is, so, Shinsei? Uh, what is Shinsei? What is not Shinsei? <laughs> I, How I dragon of appropriate, you? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the appropriate dragon answer. Um, <laughs> no, I... I Regarding anything, and you know, this is something that all of the writers keep on having to say when we we talk to people. Anything regarding where the story is going, we sign NDAs, non disclosure agreements, Fair saying enough. we are legally bound not to say anything about where things are going. <laughs> um, and and like I said. Um, because in many cases, people are speculating about stuff where we, the writers, are mm. like, no, seriously, we have no idea where that's going <laughs> either. Um, because the writers and the story team are separate. Um, the story mm. team are direct employees of Fantasy Flight, and they are the ones who do the large-scale plan for where are things going in the long term. And we can suggest things for that. There are certainly things where I do know where it's going because I was talking with them about it and saying, hey, what if thus and such? Um so some stuff I know, provided, of course, that it doesn't change. But there's a lot of it, like I said earlier, of you know what's going to happen with Daisetsu and Sotori. I don't know. <laughs> I am in the same darkness as the rest of you. Uh, so all of that is a roundabout way of saying, I cannot tell you whether I know anything about that or not. And if I did know, I couldn't tell you. So <laughs> That's terribly fine, but I had to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, I understand the, the curiosity. And trust me, it kills me when I know <laughs> stuff about where it's going and I can't tell you all. 
We'll just have to look forward to your writing and find out that way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and that's part of it is that there are stories that are written and in the pipeline where I don't know when they're going to come out. And I'm like, ah, I can't wait for you guys to read this thing one of these days. (laughs) And so that's actually the worst is when it's written. And I still can't (laughs) talk about it because you haven't read it yet. (laughs) Yeah, we can't wait either. So no. Yeah. (laughs) But thank you so much for giving the answer that you could. We appreciate it. I think that's us. This has been this has been a really great conversation. This has been been so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank so, you guys so for inviting much. me. I I like the chance to talk about these things, honestly, and I I don't get a chance to talk about L5R stuff very much because, you know, mostly when I'm doing interviews and such, they're about my own fiction, understandably. <laughs> um, mm. But it's it's fun to sort of nerd out about this thing because, I mean, like I said, I, I started out as a fan of the game before I was writing for it, which I think is true of most of us, so, you know. We yeah. enjoy getting a chance to, to be nerds about it. <laughs> Maybe if we have some any big, big revelations having to do with the dragon and works that you have been working on to come in the future, then we will maybe have to have another interview to talk about that. Yep. I'd be happy to do it. Thank Before you so much. Before we go, is there anywhere people could find you on the internet? The main places that you can find me are uh, my website, which is swantower.com. Uh, and then I am on Twitter as swan underscore tower, because uh, mm-hmm. I think swan tower without the underscore was already taken. Um, I am not on Facebook or Tumblr or those kinds of things, so I, I cannot be found there. But if you go to swantower.com, there's a way to uh, subscribe so that you'll get notifications when I have a new blog post. I also have a newsletter that you can sign up for there, which only goes out like once every few months because it's basically only when I have substantial news to announce. So I promise I will not, you know, spam you with all kinds of stuff. All right. Sounds good. Then people can look for you there. All right. But I think that's it for us this week. Uh, This is Kakita Kaori saying goodbye. And this is Gova. And until next time, keep your jade handy. And this is Marie Brennan saying matane. (laughs) (laughs) Ja, mata. Hi. All right. 